Welcome to Mental Health in Minnesota, produced by NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of children and adults with mental illnesses and their families. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namihelps.org. Hi, I'm Kay King. I'm a community educator for eight years for NAMI Minnesota. I'm a family member who was born to a mother who lived with mental illness, and my only sibling lives with bipolar disorder. I hope you can join us for Get to Know NAMI. It's a session where we talk about education, support, and advocacy at NAMI Minnesota. At the session, you'll have a chance to learn about classes and programs that we provide. You'll have a chance to hear about our support groups and our helpline. You'll also have a chance to hear a little bit about the legislative policy, first-person language, and other advocacy programs that we offer. We have daytime and evening sessions available, one hour in length. Please go to our NAMI Minnesota website, namihelps.org, to see locations, times, and dates of our programs. Hope you'll join us. Hi, my name is Brian Jost. I'll be your host. NAMI Minnesota is celebrating its 40th anniversary year of providing education, support, and advocacy. This episode is one of the 40 stories of hope related to our 40th anniversary. Welcome to another episode, everybody. Thanks for listening. Today we have Eileen Stack recording on February 28th, 2017. And Eileen, can you tell me about your journey to NAMI? What brought you to NAMI? Well, my journey started with a tragedy. My son, who has uh, schizophrenia, killed my husband on June 27, 1997. And uh, it was a roller coaster ride from the time that he was diagnosed. He was a senior at St. John's University. And five months before he graduated, he was not doing well, and we were called to bring him home from school. And it was an emotional roller coaster for the rest of that time. He would go and see a psychiatrist, be put on meds, and then he didn't like what the meds did to his mind, and so he'd stop taking meds. So this happened, oh, about two and a half years prior to this event. After the event, I got a call from one of our state representatives to see if I would meet with another state representative, Mindy Greiling. And by then, I had gone through some healing process and decided there must be a purpose in this, and I had to find a purpose. So Mindy and I met in my dining room in St. Anthony Park, and we had conversations about my son and her son. And my biggest frustration, I think, through the process of dealing with Will I happened to be an RN, and every time we took him to the hospital, because he was now 30, we could not contribute anything to his care. Couldn't tell him about the meds or anything. They said, no, we'll call you in the time. So it took a while for him to sign the permission slip to have us see him, but we could not contribute anything to the care. The other frustration was dealing with the legal system. He was not doing well, was living in his own apartment, and I got a call from one of his friends said that he was threatening people with a knife, and so I called the police and said, you know, you've got to pick him up, and they said, well, unless he's willing to go, we can't do that, and I think I remember screaming at him, and I said, he's putting other people in danger, so he was admitted to Hennepin at that time, and then was released 
And we had a number of psychiatrists that, uh, because he changed his insurance, that saw him. And we decided, I was probably about a year and a half after that event, to see if we could get him committed. So our, his psychiatrist agreed. We had a court date in Hennepin, and he was interviewed by the court's appointed psychiatrist for about 15 minutes. And when it came to the hearing, that psychiatrist thought that he really was too bright. He knew about his meds, and there was no reason for the commitment. They had Will get on the stand, and the judge questioned him, and he said, well, my mom's a nurse, so she'll make sure that I take my meds. And I asked permission to speak, and I told Will, I said, I'm your mother, I'm not your nurse, and I, it won't be up to me for you to take your meds. So the commitment process was denied at that time. And that was February of the year of 1997. He moved home with us, lived in a, a downstairs room that we had. That was a bedroom and a, a, a rec room. Became very paranoid, would cover the windows with blankets. And uh, we kept on encouraging him to seek help. And the interesting thing is when he wasn't feeling well enough, he would ask his father to take him into the hospital. And so Tom would take him in, and he again uh, went off his medication. So my, my husband would take him in, and he'd be put on another med. We'd bring him home, and he would stop taking his medication again. And I remember the morning I was going off to work. I was still teaching in the hospice program. And I, I had checked out the mental health unit at St. Joe's where my office was. And I knew that they would take new patients, so I asked Will if he would call the psychiatrist and make an appointment. And I remember that morning I said, you know, will you call? He said, well, I really don't need to. There was never any indication that he didn't love his father. So that day was a Thursday, and I called home. And I know he was going to help Tom take groceries from the church to the food shelves. And I called home, and there was no answer. So I thought, well, maybe they're running that errand. And I thought, I told my husband on, on the voicemail, I'll stay here, clean up my desk, and then if you'll make a salad, I'll stop and get a roasted chicken or, for, for dinner. But call me back. And at 7 o'clock, I was still there, no call back. So I started home, stopped, and got the chicken. When I got home, the garage door was open, our van was gone, our dog was chained um, to his leash in the backyard, and I walked into the house. There was a lunch tray on the kitchen table, and then I walked through the house and discovered my husband's body. So I knew what had happened. I called 911. And then I called my chaplain from hospice because all the priests were at a uh, a meeting in Rochester, and I knew he had just got back from the Philippines. I remembered his number. They had me call from the paramedic van. And then after that, I couldn't remember a lot of things. They took my blood pressure, and they said, could we go back into the house and get your blood pressure medication? And I said, I don't have high blood pressure. And they said, you do now. And then, of course, they got onto the news. And pretty soon, there were cars arriving with television cameras. 
and my neighbor came along and they helped me. I could not walk. My knees were completely numb. They helped me into the yard and the next door neighbors. And that is not the end, but that is the story of that day. We went through a number of hearings and then finally had a trial. And Will did plead guilty. So he, he was sentenced to a 25-year sentence with a 17-year parole and was sent to Oak Park Heights. And I saw him once in Ramsey County to ask him why, and he had this blank stare and told me it would all be revealed at the trial. Anyway, it wasn't. He was sentenced. And I didn't go out to see him in Oak Park Heights, but I had read a number of articles about hospice care in prisons, and I kept on, I was on a, uh, the physician's committee, and I kept on saying we really need to, you know, get hospice involved with prisoners. It doesn't matter what they've done. They still are entitled to a quality of life at the end of life. And one day I got a call from one of the physicians, and he said, Eileen, I think your wish has come true. We just got a call from Oak Park Heights, and they'd like to have hospice care out there. So, of course, there was a lot of procedure to go through in order to do that. And we finally got the papers in order, and myself and our director, and the admission nurse went out to Oak Park Heights to sign the papers to establish hospice care out at, at Oak Park Heights. Uh, one of the nurses saw my name badge, and she said, well, don't you have somebody here? And I said, yes, but I'm here professionally and not for a personal reason. And the interesting thing is that Will was in group, and the psychiatrist said, they're going to be coming out of group. I think we better get these people out of here until they're out of group. So we were taken into another room temporarily until they, uh, they came out of group. And there are windows around the room that we're in, so anybody could look out or look in. And Will must have forgotten something in his cell because all of a sudden he's walking up the stairs and he spotted me. And I said to the nurse, you're going to have to tell him that I'm not here on a personal basis. I'm here professionally. And she did. And then came back and said, well, he wants to know when you're going to come and see him. And of course, I was so flustered at that time with having that happen that I said, oh, you know, this weekend. So, of course, for a person that keeps the promise, I did go out and see him that weekend. I took a friend with me because that was a difficult thing to do. And I began visiting him. He was in the mental health unit there for quite a while. And the interesting thing is he never mentioned his father all the time. And I wasn't sure what his mental status was, whether to ask him about his father. And psychiatrists kept on changing, and I would talk to the psychiatrist and find out if he had any remorse or anything. So the visits were pretty superficial. He wanted to know about his sisters and brothers and nieces and nephews, and I'd inform him. And then he was transferred, I think it was to Rush City, and he didn't want me to visit out there. And then he was transferred again to Faribault. He was released on December 3rd of 2016, and my other children did not want him to know that I was going to have some major surgery. They were terrified that he was going to be released, and they were terrified for me. 
Unfortunately, one of the detectives told them that the way he set up the instruments that he used to kill my husband looked like he was waiting for me to come home. So they were really fearful. How did I get involved in NAMI? It's a long way around. But anyway, I met with Mindy, and it was about a year later, and I said we really had to change some of the laws you know, for for an easier commitment, an easier way to get people in for a, at least a 72-hour hold. And she came up with a bill, and this is a long time, but I know that I testified at a hearing, and I thought I could handle it. I, I took friends with me again, and I, I did, but I handled it quite cheerfully, pleading for the fact that we need to have a 72-hour hold on anyone that has a mental illness. And anyway, a little while later, Mindy said, well, I'm recommending you to the board. So I got on the board of NAMI, and I served for six years. And what year was it that you started on the board? I think it was 99. And um, I was on the board for six years. In the last two years, I was president. But it was a great experience. And I felt that, as I said, there had to be a purpose to this happening in my life. And my purpose was to do the best I can on the board. We started Music for the Mind, which is now the annual Spring Gala. And that was a great experience because we were able to get musicians that would donate their time. And we held the first two, I think, at the History Center. And they were usually well attended. And during that time, I, of course, attended the national meetings with Sue and one of my other colleagues from the board. And I discovered how fortunate we were to have somebody like Sue Abderholden to be the executive director, because other states did not accomplish as much as we did at that time. So it was fun to discover that, yeah, we were doing very well. But it was because of Sue, and of course, because of Sue, they were still doing well. How did you see NAMI Minnesota change during those six years or so when you were on the board? It grew. We had new programs. The rural areas come in. So there were, there were a lot of changes. And of course, the walk that began during that time and has been successful, I think, through the years. So there were a lot of things that were started and have, have kept going. Is there a particular area that you feel most proud of having been a part of? Well, I think Music for the Mind was, because I had to con some of my friends to be the masters of ceremonies. <laughs> uh, but one of the other things that I found, I, I did family to family for three years. And after I retired from teaching in hospice, I became a faith community nurse and found out that my colleagues knew very little about mental health. So I copied all the fact sheets, and each person got a booklet with all the fact sheets. And, of course, I recommended that they, you know, even come to a, a support group meeting just that they see what it's like. Because nurses really don't have, unless you specialize in mental health, don't have an idea of how important it is to understand what's going on with the person that has a mental illness. How have you seen the mental health system change over the years? I think we've made some progress, but I, you know, I'm not being the most patient person in this area. I don't think we've seen enough. My son was released. He broke parole 
went back into prison. And he came out again after, I think it was 120 days. And they found him a place to live. And unfortunately, he's well-educated. He's arrogant. And the place that they found him to live was not conducive. He did not really like it. And he didn't like the people that lived there. He didn't get along very well. So consequently, he went back into prison. And right now, he actually, tomorrow, he's going to be sent to um, Anoka. So, you know, what I'm not sure, you know, whether the release programs are meeting the needs of somebody that's committed a crime that's mentally ill. And uh, So what do you think needs to change there? What would need to happen? Education. Education of release agents who were parole officers. More education on their part to understand. The last release, Will had a, a fact team working with him, which included a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and some people to find uh, housing for him. And so they're trying, but I think because he stopped taking his meds again, I think the fear factor is there. I mean, he committed a horrendous crime, and I think the fear factor of that, he'd probably do that again. And who knows? I don't. So again, education of all the systems that are involved with people that have a mental illness, I think is important. What has it meant for you personally to have been involved with NAMI? I think it's been a great support system. Uh, Sue gets my emails every time I run into a, a roadblock with the system. One of the caseworkers that was at Fairbow, I was trying to get information, and he was not giving me enough information that I thought I was entitled to. So I emailed Sue, and I said, you know, this is what's happening. So I think every time I run into something that I ask for her help, help and she's been very helpful. So I think Nami's there for me all the time. Is there anything on your mind that you'd like to share? Maybe for somebody who's listening who isn't very familiar with Nami? It's interesting because with people knowing my history, I get numerous phone calls. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to renew my nurse's license because I'm retired. But I decided, okay, I get enough of these calls and other calls that I feel that I can't give people referrals or information without being licensed. And it's interesting that I've had families come to my home and, you know, what's the next best step that we can do? And, of course, I always say get involved in NAMI, get into the support groups, do as much as you can for them. So I really encourage others to get involved, you know, that have somebody that's got a mental illness. I hope they do. I don't care if they have or not. Right. Yeah. So many resources mm-hmm. available. Well, thank you, Eileen. I appreciate you having this conversation today. You're welcome. NAMI Minnesota champions justice, dignity, and respect for all people affected by mental illnesses. Through education, support, and advocacy, we strive to eliminate the pervasive stigma of mental illnesses, affect positive changes in the mental health system, and increase the public and professional understanding of mental illnesses. NAMI Minnesota vigorously promotes the development of community mental health programs and services, improved access to services, and increased opportunities for recovery. Call us at 651-645-2948 or email NAMIHelps at namimn.org. NAMI Minnesota's website is namihelps.org. 
Outside of Minnesota, visit NAMI.org to find your state NAMI organization. 